The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord. When Judas had gone, Jesus said, Now has the Son of Man been glorified, and in him God has been glorified. If God has been glorified in him, God will in turn glorify him in himself, and will glorify him very soon. My little children, I shall not be with you much longer. I give you a new commandment. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You also must love one another. By this love you have for one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. It's providential, isn't it, that Jesus would address his friends, my little children, and you are all here to listen. I think that's beautiful. You know, I'm going to say something a bit, I guess, revealing and vulnerable here, but it falls in a context of the faith journey, and I do this from time to time. People have heard me say this. But every so often I have what I'd call a little mini crisis of faith. You think to yourself, what, what exactly are we doing? You know, what is our job? What is our role? What are we meant to be occupying ourselves with so that we're not just vainly running around you know, in the name of faith or in the name of church? And why? Like, why is that our job, if we even have one? I think that you know, we know what redundancy means in the workforce, especially in an age that's increasingly technocentric and machines and the digital world is just much more efficient than you know, frail human people. And so it's sweeping up jobs, you know, and as, as that happens, the dignity of work, you know, the dignity of what I can do with my hands, the work of my hands, my feet, the passions in my heart, my human imagination, all of that becomes less and less and less important until finally I, ha- I really have no importance in civil society. I may as well just put my feet up and chuck on the Netflix and the machines will do the rest. This is not the vision of human flourishing that God has for us, not at all. All of this is meant to serve a greater end. And if we can, if we can keep our eyes on that greater end, then, then everything falls into a, a different context. It has a different purpose. And, and I think, you know, we, we know what this means in the workforce. But the same implication is true for our missionary life. You know, Pope Francis constantly says, you and I are missionary disciples. We're called to be ambassadors of this evangelical mission we've inherited. But if the rest of the world is doing just fine without us proclaiming that truth, they don't really need us interfering with worldly affairs, well then, in a similar way, the dignity of the Christian, just like the dignity of work, it, it reduces and it's shrunk And finally, it's a thing that belongs to an era that we've grown out of as a world. I don't think that's God's vision either for the flourishing of us as people of faith. When I find these kinds of thoughts spiraling around in my mind, in my heart, I have to say I find the words of St. Paul so very grounding. The words of Paul that we heard in Acts and the words in the rest of his letters. Paul saw his evangelical mission as something with incredible urgency you know he was working under the assumption that jesus christ is returning tomorrow if not today so let's finish the work we were given but i think we can remember those words of saint paul where he says i have fought the good fight i've run the race i have kept the faith 
In these days, in this season, which is Easter, I keep saying Easter is not just a day, it's a season to drink in the fullness of, we are called to, I think, apprehend and receive the, the tremendous advantage that we gain in this season. St. Paul actually calls it the supreme advantage. What am I speaking about here? Well, allow me to read, if you would, a passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a short letter, but this is from chapter 3. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, I wish you joy in the Lord. To write to you what I have already written before is no trouble to me, and to you it will be a protection. In other words, he's saying, hey friends, I've said this a million times, but I'll say it a million more. Because one, you need to know it, and two, it's cause for tremendous joy. What is it? It's not what you'd expect. Listen to what he says in the very next line. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workmen, beware of self-mutilators. We are the true people of the circumcision since we worship the Spirit of God and make Christ Jesus our only boast, not relying on physical qualifications. Wow, that was a curveball, wasn't it? In other words, he's saying, beware of the many messages that the world can get in our ear and bark at us. The world has all sorts of things that it'll tell us about our worth, about humanity, about flesh and spirit and how they interact, about authority, about our destiny, the meaning of life, the path to happiness, all of this stuff about evil, sin, uh, redemption. One of the big problems that the early church that Paul was writing to had was they were in this constant tussle with the Jewish law that they were born out of. There was this constant temptation to see the law as a kind of unreasonable exam that God was going to put us through, okay? These ten tests. And if you can't pass, then bad luck for you. God doesn't like you. You're out. This is, of course, not what the law is, but it's, there's a temptation to see it that way. And that's bad. But what's even more bad is it evokes a kind of uh, attitude in the person trying to follow the law. They look at the law and they say, well, if that's the exam, fine. I'd never receive a high distinction in that. So just tell me what the bare minimum is. Just tell me how to get a pass. And if I can't do that, just show me how to kind of act as though I've passed <laughs> and we'll, we'll just get rid of the law. Now, this is obviously very problematic. You know, um, Not only does it reduce the law itself to something redundant, but we think of the rich young man, if you remember that story, the rich young man who came to Jesus and he was following the law and he said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and follow me. And he left sad because he was interacting with the law as if it was something to pass, when really the law and Jesus Christ are the same thing. They're the same person. The law is a living thing. We're meant to be in relationship with it. As if the law serves no purposes. Do not steal, do not kill. These are obviously tenets that are good to live by. So I guess let's beware lest we become like rich young men ourselves, or upright hypocrites on the other hand. And let's not perhaps look down our noses at the law, even if it is something that is ancient. Jesus clearly says, I came to fulfill, not to abolish the law. It's not meant to be a source of sadness or anxiety, but joy. Paul goes on, I myself could rely on the law. If anyone does claim to rely on it, my claim is better. 
Circumcised on the eighth day of my life, I was born of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrew parents. In the matter of the law, I was a Pharisee. He was a doctor of the law. He knew it better than anyone. As for religious fervor, I was a persecutor of the church. In other words, he was zealous for the purity of the law. And if anything seemed to contradict Torah, he got really angry and did some bad things to some people. As for uprightness of embodying the law, I was faultless. See, Paul is saying here, if you want to see what a high distinction looks like, that's me. Paul was the high distinction in the law. But then he goes on to say this, and I know this is a lot of scripture, but he goes on to say, what were once my assets, I now through Jesus Christ count as losses. Yes, I will go further. Because of the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I count everything else as loss. For him I have accepted the loss of all things and look on them all as filth, if only I can gain Christ and be given a place in him. Do you see what he's saying? Every single thing that we value has to be, we use this word, subordinated. Subordinated just means put into an order and there's something at the top of it. And that something is not just another thing. It's a person of supreme advantage knowing the person is Jesus. So if this doesn't astonish us, maybe we all maybe need to glance Philippians chapter 3 and just let it strike us in whatever way it does. Now, that's a lot of scriptural context, but I say that really... To, to give context to the readings we've heard. Because the work that Paul describes in Acts is in fact our work. It's the work of the church. What is that work that we're all sharing in? Paul describes it as making disciples, encouraging and exhorting each other, especially when we're in suffering. Isn't it good to have a friend to con- console you when you're in a place of sadness and sorrow and distress? This is part of the Christian occupation. Fostering and enjoying the fruitful collaboration with the community leaders. It's such a joy to visit the schools, for example, and that's part of the Christian work, not just me being there, but you having me there, is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And commending all of our concerns to God in prayer and to the community. All of this happens in the spirit of thanksgiving. How do we complete this work? Because if we don't have an end point to it, it seems like a kind of weird treadmill that you get on and it doesn't go anywhere. Like, what, what does it do for anyone other than maybe make them feel good? Think again of Paul's words. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's a certain phrase from Mother Teresa that, for whatever reason, I've found it bubbling up in my mind a lot of late. Mother Teresa says, we are called, or God calls us, not to be successful, but to be faithful. Just think on that for a moment. God calls us not to be successful. It doesn't matter if your project fails. God calls you to be faithful because he's not interested in your productivity. You know, that's, that's not the kind of relationship we are in with our God. He wants us. He wants you. How do we complete this work? We remain faithful to it. For how long? <laughs> Here's the catcher until the Lord returns. And we'll hear that in our prayer. Now, don't fall into a comic book idea of what that is. It's, it's not Jesus coming down on, you know, Saturn's rings or something. 
It's Jesus arriving to fulfill every expectation of the human conscience, like everything. We work in fidelity to that. That might be tomorrow, that might be later tonight, it might be 8,000 years from now. It doesn't actually matter because our fidelity to that awaiting is what God sees and loves. And if this, if this disheartens us, then maybe the Sabbath is a gift we need to receive once again. You know, our God actually commands us to rest. That's a good command, isn't it? It's a beautiful, beautiful gift. So anyway, our endless faithfulness is meant to, I guess, peel back the layers of our mind to see in this celebration, maybe most of all, that we're all gathered for, the descent of that gift, which is uh, spoken of in John's vision. You think to yourself, you know, especially in these days of um, approaching a federal election and with the strange story of world politics in our minds in the background, we will never actually find the new Jerusalem in this, on this world. It doesn't come up out of the world. That's a big claim, and I think it's good to name it because there are so many utopian hopes that we have in our politics. We think, yeah, that system will do it, that system will get there, that leader will have the policies and sign the treaties and whatever. No. No. I mean, yes, we work for peace, we work for justice, we work for um, the, the safeguarding of vulnerable persons and, and, and uh, civilizations. But actually, the new Jerusalem will not emerge you know, miraculously out of the work of our hands. Just like the Eucharist, we bring our gifts and God transfigures them. God uh, metamorphosizes them. Just think of what we're going to do in the Eucharist itself. Because when we see that host elevated, we see, I think, fulfilled those words of John, where he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God. God. 